It's midnight, the podcasting hour. Frightful here again, coming at you as always from my swank studio, which is to say the basement of an abandoned radio station out on Old Shelby Road. You know, if you take Shelby two miles south, you hit Pleasant Street. That only leads to one place, Pleasant View Cemetery. That's a quiet place, even as far as cemeteries go, unused for almost twenty years. The town employs a groundskeeper named Ross Benton, who works the hospital and the newer River Mist Cemetery. Ross tends the Pleasant View Cemetery once a week, mostly just mowing the grass and chasing off groundhogs. It isn't rare for Ross to be the only living person to go to the cemetery for months at a time. Even the town kids stop double-dog daring each other to spend the night on the cemetery grounds. I guess when one little boy claims to have heard moaning from inside the Fairbanks mausoleum, it's easy to dismiss. Two or three kids claim the same thing, hey, the power of rumor and suggestion. But when every kid swears the same story, when rational-minded adults like Mo Trainer, who owns two hotels in the area and sits on the town council, who lost his beloved wife Meredith to breast cancer in 2001, and thereafter visited her grave every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. sharp. When Mo stopped going to her grave in 2007, and claimed it was just time to move on, but when he said it, you'd swear you were looking at a man who was lying. On the morning of April 30th, Ross Benton drove his pickup truck out to Pleasant View. The radio was turned up, and Ross was humming along to Dolly Parton. He stopped in front of the wrought iron gates and got out of the truck, leaving the engine and the radio running. He reached for his keychain, which was attached by a carabiner to a belt loop on his work pants. He shuffled past keys to the hospital maintenance shed and the River Mist Cemetery until he found the small gold Brinks key. He worked the key into the padlock that kept the Pleasant View gate chain shut. As the key tripped the pins, the lock snapped open with a bang as loud as a pistol shot. It startled Ross for a moment. The morning was so quiet, the lock sounded so much like a small explosion. Later that day, he would not be able to explain why his eyes at that moment were drawn up toward the Fairbanks mausoleum. It was nothing more than a spot of yellow in the distance that caught his eye. But he knew everyone would know that yellow anywhere. It was a raincoat. Someone wearing a raincoat was up there by the mausoleum. Someone was there. Someone had come in despite the padlocked gate. No, Ross Benton said, surprising himself with the word. The padlock fell to the dirt with a heavy thud. The chain swung freely, clattering against the bars. Ross bent down to pick up the lock. As he did so, he felt more than saw the raincoat shift position. Whoever was up there, hearing the chains rattling, turned to look at Ross. For a moment, he felt paralyzed in his bent-over position. He thought about crawling back to his truck on his knees, keeping his head down and eyes turned away. Come on, he growled, forcing himself to stand. What was wrong with him? Why was he so spooked by the sight of a raincoat? 
He wouldn't crawl back to his truck, wouldn't slink away, wouldn't avert his eyes. He would look right at the intruder up there by the mazo. No one was there. Ross carried the padlock back to his truck and tossed it on the passenger seat. He threw the truck into gear and drove forward, pushing the gate doors wide with the front fender. He swung the truck to the right and headed away from the shed. The path ran along the inside of the fence line for fifty feet, then forked. Ross turned and laid on the gas as he drove straight for the Fairbanks mausoleum, which sat like a miniature Parthenon on the low hill at the northeast part of the grounds. It was so obvious now. It was a kid up there, probably snuck over the fence and spent the night on the grounds on a dare. When the kid heard him coming, he bolted. Well, Ross wasn't going to let him get away. Kids had to know this sort of prank was dangerous and stupid. The yellow raincoat appeared from behind a headstone and stepped out into the path. Ross stood on the brakes. The truck shuddered to a stop. The padlock slid off the passenger seat, struck the floor, and bounced once. Ross looked out the windshield. Sweat pooled in the crotch of his pants. He'd stopped the truck less than two feet from the girl in the raincoat. Yes, it was a little girl in a rain slicker. The hood was pulled up and cinched close to her face. What little of her face could be seen was pale. Very pale. He put the truck into park and opened the door. Then he sat there for a moment, just looking at the girl. He'd been driving so fast that when he braked, the tires kicked up a cloud of dirt. It swirled in the air, caught the wind, and billowed like a cloud around her. That was wrong. The dust cloud shouldn't have been hanging in the air so thickly if the ground was wet. Truth smacked Ross in the head with the same weight as the padlock. It was dry this morning. It was sunny. The tires kicked up the dust cloud because it hadn't rained in, what, six days? Why was the girl wearing a raincoat? And why, Ross's breakfast turned over in his stomach, was the raincoat dotted with perspiration? He wanted to pull the door shut and throw the truck into reverse. The girl took a step toward his side of the truck. The dust continued to swirl around her. Ross couldn't breathe. His left arm felt too heavy to lift. The door would remain open until she walked right up to him. His ass felt rooted to the seat. Nothing short of evacuating his bowels could get him to inch away from the door. He was utterly paralyzed. And then the girl was upon him. She could reach out and touch him, could climb on top of him if she wanted to. The raincoat, he could see now, with absolute certainty, was wet, as was her pale skin and the single strand of curly brown hair that fell over her face. A second truth landed on Ross that made him want to shut his eyes forever. The dust cloud had swirled around her, but her raincoat remained untouched. The dirt, the dust, it didn't cling to her wet jacket, her wet skin, almost like she wasn't there. "'What are you?' Ross asked. The girl leaned into the truck. He felt her warm, fetid breath on his cheek. It smelled like a sewer backing up. Her words reached into the pit of Ross Benton's soul. He would never forget them. Previously, she said, on Night Force, the KGB kidnapped Vanessa Van Helsing, a young woman with dangerously destructive psychic abilities. The enigmatic Baron Winters sends disgraced journalist Jack Gould and newly widowed research scientist Donovan Kane to rescue Vanessa. The hunt for the girl takes them to London, and from there beyond the Iron Curtain to Siberia. Meanwhile, Detective Short suspects the mysterious Baron of involvement in the girl's disappearance somehow. 
What horrible fate looms over Vanessa and the anti-hero members of Baron Winter's Night Force? Let's find out. For real, that's what the girl said to Ross. It was weird. Welcome back to another Night Force episode of Midnight the Podcasting Hour. I'm Ryan Daly, and with me as always for the Night Force coverage is Mr. Paul Hicks. Say hello, Paul. What's up? <laughs> I said, say hello, Paul. Uh, sorry, hello. How are you all? <laughs> Good. Welcome back. Uh, and this time we brought in a guest to help us cover the next batch of issues. He is a longtime friend of both the Fire and Water Network and Paul's Doom Patrol podcast, Waiting for Doom. You may know him as the Supergirl fan who runs the Comic Box Commentary blog. Please welcome to the show, Dr. Ange. How's it going, Ange? Uh, it's going great. Thanks for inviting me. I am a fan of this title since it was on the spinner racks, and so uh, I'm looking forward to talk about this. Awesome. Well, that actually brings me to my next point. But first, thank you very much for joining us on this episode. You know, you kind of sort of made uh, an indirect appearance on the last one uh, by uh, contributing to PJ Frightful's opening story. uh, And so many people loved that. So uh, thank you very much for that. And you were a fan of the original Night Force. I think you and Martin Gray are the only fans who remember this series with fondness. So tell us about that. What is your history with Night Force? Uh, so, you know, the time period that Night Force came out, I would say, is when I was kind of making a change from comic book fan to collector. So instead of like spinning the rack and looking for the coolest cover, I was like, let me collect a title, you know, on a monthly basis. And this appeared in that Teen Titans as a bonus book. And uh, I read it and it sounded intriguing. And, you know, I was 12. So you can do the math about how old I am. And this sounded like it was sort of a mature reader's book, even though it wasn't labeled that. So I decided that I would pick it up. You're 85 years old? (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes I feel like it, right? Uh, It's not the years, it's the miles. Um, And so what I'll say is that I got the first eight issues of this and then stopped there. Um, so completed the first arc. I think I was too young. So, you know, uh, I read it now and I'm like, oh, this is a pretty interesting story and it's not bad. And it clearly is sort of aimed for maybe a more adult reader interested in horror. As a kid, I think most of it was over my head. And I was still in that period where I looked at Gene Colan's art and said, this stinks. Whereas hmm. now it's like, oh, my God, he's a master. So uh, so I remember this fondly in that I felt like, boy, maybe this is a R-rated comic for me uh, as a young kid. Um, and there were those horror elements. I liked horror movies. But I think I appreciate it more now than I did then. Cool. Paul, have we gotten your story of what your experience with us? Yeah, we know. We, you, you mentioned that before. <laughs> I've been there, done that. Old hat. So, uh, and just the new hotness on the show. So. <laughs> All right, folks, well, we are continuing our coverage of the first story arc from Night Force called The Summoning. Now, Paul and I reviewed issues one through four on previous episodes. The three of us now are going to try and wrap up this story by tackling issues five, six, seven, and the first half of issue eight. To keep these episodes at a manageable length, I might break this up into two episodes. I guess you'll know the answer to that when you look at the show notes for this one. Anyway, though, we're going to take a short promo break right now for another podcast, and when we come back, we will review Night Force Issue 5. Stick around. 
Phew! Another great show wrapped. Sure was. Now, uh, time to move on to our serious business. Time for the monthly team meeting. So, Team WFD, roll call. Activate. Host, Mike. I'm here, bro. Webmaster, Doug. Hey, everybody. Kapow. Tech support, Rifty. Huzzah! It is I, Rifty. Ascendian Twitter account, Wilfred. And me, other host, Paul. Okay, everyone present. Now let's look at our upcoming schedule because we've got some big things coming up. I think our first order of business should be the new segment. Thoughts? Is the new segment about my triumphant return to your world? What the f***? Holy s***. Son of a... Who let the candle maker in here? Well, Fred... There are far too many humans on this show. I'm just trying to balance things out. Look, I'm, so- I'm sorry, Candlemaker. There's nothing really for you in the upcoming episodes. Plus, let's be honest, you, you had your 15 minutes. What? what? How dare you? I'm King Kandor. Yeah, 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 whatever. Look, um, we've got a new segment launching. We've got some guests planned, Jail May 2 to look forward to. Not to mention our 100th episode coming up. And we really don't have room for you. I'm sorry. But, 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 but what? <sighs> Fine. Whatever. You mortals. And your show suck. Oh, yeah? Well, we might suck, but we can still blow you out just like Dorothy the Ape Face Girl did. Yeah, in your face, King Candle. Oh, ha ha. Very funny. Bye, losers. See you in hell. Man, that guy was a jerk. Waiting for Doom, the world's greatest Doom Patrol podcast. Available on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and podbean.com. Night Force, issue 5. Cover date, December 1982. Actual on-sale date, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, was September 16th, 1982. The book cost 60 cents. Series artist Gene Colan and Bob Smith drew the cover, which is a kind of montage of images with Baron Winters in the most prominent spot, looking concerned. Around him are images of Jack Gold carrying Donovan Kane through snow-covered mountains, Vanessa Van Helsing strapped to a chair, and some kind of pyramid factory complex in the background. What are your thoughts on this cover? Uh, Ange, we'll start with you since you're our guest. What do you think of the cover to issue 5? You know, it kind of strikes me a little bit like um, a movie poster where they're trying to show you different elements of what's going to be inside. And it would work best if this was like a movie in a franchise that we understood who Baron Winters were. (laughs) Um, I like the purple uh, color. I think that kind of adds to it. And I just wish that there was more like of a kinetic feel to what's going on, especially when it comes to the Vanessa piece. Like, I don't really know what's happening to her in that chair. Uh, so she's just kind of sitting there screaming, and it looks like there's wind around her, but I don't know if she's on a carnival ride or <laughs> getting her soul torn apart, as is happening in the book. Paul, what do you think? <laughs> um, oh, I'm going to focus on the details. Uh, I, there's a, a skull just under the E, and it looks like a Raza Ghoul skull, because it's got sort of whiskers. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of cool um but yeah baron winters he's doing a elderly man's cologne commercial pose i think <laughs> but i mean it's good it's a good cover there's nothing wrong with it 
you guys hit some of my exact same points. Um, my first thought looking at it was, I was like, yes, this looks like a movie poster from, you know, several years ago. We've got kind of like our main character sort of just looking intense on the cover. And then we've got a few little snippets of action beats. But yeah, I actually thought Angel was like, is, is like the chair just spinning around in a circle? I was like, is this is the goal to make her throw up at the end? Like, and- I don't know if she's screaming or if she's going like, wee! <laughs> like, you know, so... And yeah, like, and and Baron Winters is doing one of his like modeling poses. Like, put your hand on your chin. Like, give me, give me like the the white hot fire eyes or something like that from Zoolander. But it, I mean, but it is good, and I think the color contrast. Like, each one of the covers has had slightly a different kind of like primary color accent to it, and I like the purple for this one. It's cool. It's different. Yeah. All right, let's get into the summoning chapter five. The Summoning, Chapter 5, City on the Edge of Hell, is written and edited by Marv Wolfman, penciled by Gene Colan, inked by Bob Smith, lettered by Todd Klein, and colored by Michelle Wolfman. In the frigid wastes of Siberia, the two KGB agents who kidnapped Vanessa Van Helsing lead their hostage to Science City Complex Number 5, a sprawling facility that looks like concept art for the Jetsons meets Asgard, topped off with a massive ancient Egypt-style pyramid in the center of it all. The whole installation is operated by thousands of technicians, assisting hundreds of scientists in their study and mastery of the effects of psychic phenomena. The KGB agents tell Vanessa that her abilities are critical to the success of Science City No. 5, that the scientists there simply want to run a few experiments on her, and then they'll let her go. Vanessa knows that's bullshit, but she doesn't care. She's confident that Baron Winters and Jack Gould will come to her rescue. The agents tell her Jack and Donovan Kane died in a plane crash, but Vanessa refuses to believe that. Jack has to save her. He told her he loved her. The agents lead Vanessa to the Central Pyramid, which they say was built specifically for her. Once inside, Vanessa is awestruck by the size and scope of the pyramid. Four levels tall, each level 75 feet, so 300 feet in total, and each level is brimming with advanced computer circuitry and cutting-edge electronics dedicated to Vanessa's uncanny power. Vanessa is spooked by the sight of a giant pentagram painted on the floor far below her. Spooked because the last couple of times she's been near a pentagram, things haven't gone so well. The KGB guys take her through the pyramid, showing her other psychics they're testing, including telepathics, telekinetics, and finger readers. Then they bring her to an elderly scientist named Professor Carl Valdis. Despite her present circumstance, Professor Valdis has a soothing, grandfatherly air about him and puts the girl at ease. Valdis takes Vanessa on a tour through the pyramid, showing her other test subjects, such as a test of energy auras put out by people, and a woman who undergoes hypnotic reincarnation to replicate the natural talents of long-dead artists and musicians. Valdis takes Vanessa to the bottom floor of the pyramid while reminding her, and the reader, of her backstory. Vanessa might be the most powerful psychic in the world. She has the power to harness the raw negative energy that we call evil, but she's had little control over it throughout her life, which is why she spent years in an insane asylum. The U.S. Department of Defense hired Donovan Kane to try to control that power and potentially use it as a weapon. Professor Valdis walks Vanessa out to the center of the giant pentagram on the bottom floor of the pyramid, telling her that he can cure her of the pain of her vast psychic power. 
He pushes a button on his watch, and the floor opens up in the center of the pentagram. A bizarre-looking contraption comes out of the floor, a mishmash of assorted metal pipes and tubes all bending and pointing in different directions. Valdis calls the machine a psychotron. He sits Vanessa down next to the machine, and the metal pipes pin her in place. The psychotron, he explains, can amplify her power, and what's more, control them. With Vanessa Van Helsing in the psychotron, the Soviets might have the most powerful weapon on the planet. And suddenly, the old man doesn't seem so soothing and grandfatherly to Vanessa anymore. Meanwhile, Jack Gold and Donovan Kane arrive in Moscow with forged travel documents. Their entry through customs is expedited by a man named General Korda, who claims to be loyal to Baron Winters, just as his father and his father's father were before him. But a different customs officer identifies Donovan and Jack, and reports the general's treachery to the KGB agents who kidnapped Vanessa. General Korda drives Jack and Donovan out to a private airfield. The pilot has been instructed to take them to Science City Complex No. 5, believing it to be a training mission. But as the Americans board the plane, Russian soldiers arrive at the airfield to kill General Korda. They order the Americans off the plane, but Jack forces the pilot to proceed with their mission. The plane takes off after Jack blows up some fuel barrels to give them some cover. In Georgetown, Dr. Rabin goes to Wintersgate Manor to confront the Baron about Vanessa's disappearance. Baron Winters assures her that his operatives will have her back soon. Rabin says if Vanessa is not safely returned in two days, Detective Short will arrest the Baron. Nine miles out from Science City 5, the pilot tells Jack and Donovan the storm is threatening to tear the plane apart if they go any further. Jack and Donovan parachute down to the frozen Siberian wastes in full weather gear. Then they begin to snowshoe the rest of the way. Donovan is slow going, what with him being shot in the leg recently, but he says the cold helps numb the pain. To pass the time, Jack talks, and talks, telling Donovan all about his life and his career as a journalist. When Donovan can't walk anymore, Jack carries him on his shoulder. They talk about Vanessa. Donovan still thinks Jack was wrong to take advantage of the girl, but Jack defends himself. He even likes Vanessa. But by this point in the conversation, Jack has walked as far as he can. He collapses into the snow. Donovan crawls a little further and tells Jack they must go on, because at long last, he can see the sprawling science city in the canyon below. But it looks like Donovan and Jack will die within sight of it, as their KGB pals have caught up with them. Inside the pyramid, Professor Valdis tells Vanessa that he was the mastermind behind her capture. Everything that has happened was designed to bring her here so that he could use the Psychotron to control her power and unleash hell on Earth. To be continued in Night Force, Issue 6. All right, Paul, what did you think of this issue? Yeah, it, it's um, a new locale and um, new danger, and yeah, everyone has a bit of a rough time in this one. <laughs> yeah, but um, I'm very much concerned about the Science City logistics. Like, that is – how many people do they say work there? It's some ridiculous number. Oh, yeah, it's, a, it's like yeah. A, a small country basically in itself. Yeah, I mean, what are they doing for food and water and supplies? Where's it all coming from? Where are all the staff living? You know, these are all the things that occur to me when I look at that. Um, <laughs> probably uh, I'm off topic, I'm guessing, at this point. <laughs> Ange, what did you think of it? Uh, you know, for me, I think the thing that struck me as a kid was that it looks like it's going to be very high science, and there are things inside it that seem very high science, like there's all sorts of old-looking computer banks with magnetic tape and things like that in the background. But then the big pyramid on the inside seems to be hollow with the big pentagram on the bottom, and 
you know, the eventual device that he pulls out to try to help suck the energy out of out of Vanessa mm. looks like a pile of garbage, right? That he's, <laughs> you know, he calls it a, a Pavlita psychotron. Yep. And of course, there was no internet back then, but you can actually look it up. That guy existed and yeah. put together psychotrons like that. So, you know, that was the first thing I did when I reread it uh, this time is, oh, maybe that's like an actual thing. And so there is this sort of like dissonance of which has been uh, obvious throughout the series, right, that there is people trying to use science to um, harness uh, psychic or supernatural energy. And that sort of um, juxtaposition of those two things um, is a little bit interesting to me. Uh, yeah, the, the Psychotron, is, it's very Kirby-esque, isn't it? And, but it also looks like a modern sculpture and it doesn't look like it's got any um, power to it. That, yeah, was, it, it, that was my first thought. I thought it looked like he was trying to do something that was vaguely Kirby-esque, but it didn't really look like a Kirby design. Like There's like no real rhyme or reason to it. It does have that sort of just modern sculpture thing. And I don't know. What do we think of it? Like When I look at the Psychotron, I'm like, that's kind of just silly. I wish, I wish Colin would have taken another pass at the design for this, this big machine. What well, you, Vanessa gets trapped in it, but it's just like, these bars that are sort of around her that she could looks like she could easily slip out of if she you know just did a slight limbo out there yeah it you know she says at one point you know there doesn't seem to be any power source and he goes yeah there are no moving parts and no power source at all it's designed specifically for you and then it does seem to you know <laughs> adapt itself around her putting all of these pipes but for me, it just looked like something that would be in uh, like a modern art museum uh, and would sell for $5 million and it's just a pile <laughs> of junk. <laughs> it's because all the pieces are primary colored and different uh, colors. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's what makes it look like art. But I, I love it. You've got this scientist, Valdez, who looks, you know, he's like a kindly old man. And the bit where he turns and starts to become menacing, he, you know, you've got the art really showing it clearly. And then Marv Wolfman just has to say, uh, Valdez's face changes, no longer grandfatherly. It takes on a dark, sinister cast. Vanessa simply screams. Like, yeah, we can see that. It's in the picture. <laughs> Yeah, that's the beauty of this medium, right? <laughs> Is that it's words and pictures. Yeah, on um, Hub's uh, Tighten Up the Defense podcast, where he reviews uh, show the and tell. Team. I know exactly what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, he always they always find that one panel where he just overwrites it, where the art clearly conveys what is going on, but Wolfman has to just write some sort of expository word balloon or dialogue that explains it. And yeah, I, I was thinking that exact same thing we get from his eyes and what he's actually telling us that he has changed. He's no longer on the good side. And it's like, yep, changed to a sinister cast. We got that one. <laughs> um, a few other things about the art. like I liked right from the beginning, the scope seems to be much bigger now. And I noticed that in the first six pages of this issue, we get two full-page splashes and one double-page splash. So just in, in the first six pages, four of those pages are devoted to just three images. And for me, that helped kind of sell that things have really escalated, the scale of this thing, the fact that they're in Siberia, just this wasteland, and everything is just like much bigger. The, the looming danger and the threat is that much more intense. I, I like that. I like that he, they actually kind of like stepped back and he took some time with the art to show how big these this city and this contraption is to to really sell the power that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and uh, one of my favourite tropes from the comic comes back, and that's uh, Winter's talking to the cheetah, you know, <laughs> as though it said something. I know Merlin, I am truly afraid of what might happen if my nightfall should fail me. I imagine he, you know, at night he's like, what, you think I should have another piece of cake, Merlin? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Just uses that as an excuse. <laughs> The scene with um, Merlin and uh, Baron Winters, it starts off with Dr. Rabin is there to remind us that this is a subplot that Vanessa has been kidnapped and she thinks he's responsible. I'm not sure I understand the threat that she's making to Baron Winters. In two days, that won't matter any longer. If Vanessa isn't back in 48 hours, Detective Elliot Short swore he would see you behind bars. Like... Why? Like they know that she was kidnapped by Russian operatives and taken to taken out of the country. Why is he still the suspect? Plus, he's like her her legal heir, like her ward, or, or she's his ward, or something. I know. I understand that. Like Raven hates him for reasons that we're never really quite clear on. But why would the police really suspect him? And just yeah. why this, this arbitrarily? If she's not, if the Russians don't decide to return her in two days, we're going to arrest you because. You know, we got nothing else going on. Yeah, it doesn't really hold up. But it's just, uh, I don't know, artificial ticking clock to the whole thing. Yeah. No, I feel like he needs to have some sort of conflict as well, right? So, because he can't just sit back and do nothing. So, I don't quite understand the logistics around it, but this whole thing that happens later on in these issues where he's kind of being chased, I think is just to give him something to do other than, you know, spout things as he sits in his big chair. <laughs> But we're, um, we've got Jack and Donovan making their way uh, to Siberia. Uh, and it says in the text, that, in the caption, that they're in the plane they're in. It has made 12 re- refueling stops in the last 11 hours. That's What's that? Every 45 minutes it stops? <laughs> yeah, a little more. That's not a very efficient plane. Yeah, you should get a bigger fuel tank or something. Yeah. That has to be a, a mistake. <laughs> I, I would think. I think he's trying to emphasize the point that this place is really in the middle of nowhere, that there's no easy access to it. But, yeah, the numbers in that don't really hold up. Yeah, well, it takes a while to land a plane and take it off again. So, yeah, <laughs> not really efficient. Yeah, and how remote can it be if there are 11 different gas stations along the way? <laughs> uh, uh. Yeah. Plus, there's like 23 million people who live in this place. <laughs> it's a huge, it's a huge support staff that they go through the whole numbers of how big this place is. More than yeah, nine. families, yeah. families and shopping centers and <laughs> schools. They'd all be nearby. There's a porno theater just because. <laughs> but I do like looking at it. I do love like we go over this hill and this has been for the most part a kind of grounded story and now we're in this fantastical Russian sort of science city this feels very James Bond like including the fact that they get there on rocket sleds these rocket powered sleds that I really like that they pull up to this little depot which is like a docking bay just in a depressed part of the tundra with ladders leading up I think that looks really cool but yeah it reminded me of some James Bond movie yeah, it's, I mean, it's a model, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> when they come over the hill. Yeah. <laughs> yes. In those days, they would have built a model of it. <laughs> a matte painting or something in the background. 
Uh, yeah, and and you mentioned I had the same thing where I looked up. I was like, Robert Pavlito is was he a real guy? Was he some authority on this stuff? And yeah, he studied psychic and telekinetic, telekinetic activity, and he created something called a psychotronic generator. So uh, Wolfman was studying up on this. I mean, I think this this whole story and this whole series was inspired by a lot of things. I see. I, I think he was reading some early Stephen King stuff, like Carrie, or, or at least saw the movie, and then. Yeah, there's James Bond, Mission Impossible stuff in here. It really gives you that feeling. Um, but I liked it. Overall, I really enjoyed this chapter. I thought this was fun. Uh, we get some exposition dump from Valdis, kind of explaining the nature of the, the operation, why they want her, what what their sort of... We sort of get a little bit of what their, their goal is. We get more of it in the next issue. We get the, these sort of character moments between Jack and Donovan as they're walking through the ice, and Jack ends up having to carry Donovan there. We get, we find out more about their family lives, their their marriages, and stuff like that. Yeah, and they talk about classic comics at one point. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Jack doesn't strike me as a comic reader for some reason. No, if he wasn't a no. journalist, I wouldn't think he was actually any kind of reader. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He strikes me like the guy who would beat kids up in high school for reading comics, not the guy who read comics. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Any other thoughts on this one? Well, it progresses, and we've got uh, Vanessa in more peril, as she is yeah. once again the subject of an experiment, and she's uh, restrained. It's, uh, you know, it's a Wednesday for her, isn't it? <laughs> Classic Professor Valdis, am I right? <laughs> right. Yeah, like you, Orion, I felt that this was the issue where we kind of turned the corner, right? So we're not in Georgetown anymore. We're somewhere else. We're like, we're really approaching the finale. You can sort of feel that. Um, and so I, I think that this is where we know that the story is kind of um, approaching its end um, because of this new locale, the artwork that sells it, all of those things. Yeah. All righty then. Let us move on to Night Force number six. Cover date, January 1983. On sale date, October 21st, 1982. Cover price, 60 cents. Cover art by Gene Colan and Bob Smith again. The cover shows Detective Elliot Short and two uniformed cops walking determinedly out of the mouth of a giant skull toward Baron Winters and his pet cheetah. What do we think about this cover, Paul? Uh, it looked like the skull of Grimace or someone like that. It <laughs> does not look like a human skull. It's very squat and strange looking. But um, it, it's very bold. We're going with a green theme in this one. And Merlin looks like he's reacting quite uh, negatively to the policeman. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I, I like it. It's very bold. Certainly yeah. eye-catching. Stands out. But, I mean, once again, these covers, they sell the book as being, you know, not a not a kiddie romp. They, they do look more serious and sinister. And, you know, it really does pitch it as... Uh, you know, it can't say mature readers on the cover, but it pitches it that way as far as, you know, the tone of the art on the cover. Right. And what do you think? I do like the green. It seems like every uh, cover seems to have some one color that really is, uh, that pops, that kind of grabs your eye. I find the Baron Winter side of this whole story to be really secondary to the Vanessa story. The Vanessa story, I'm really invested in Baron Winters. I kind of don't care. So, um, I would have much rather seen a picture that shows that side of the story, although next issue's cover is really is sort of uh, my favorite of the bunch. But, it, again, it says, like, oh, this is a mature reader thing, but this also could be, oh, we're at the fun house, 
let's go get hot dogs, right? Um, <laughs> you know, is this the exit of, uh, I mean, I guess people are carrying guns, so it's not that. But um, there just isn't a sense. The skull, I think, is so kind of weird looking that it looks too phony for me to get really frightened by, I guess is what I'd say. I Maybe like, I'm being too harsh. No, I I like the idea of this. I like, like, if we could actually see this sort of animated, like, the skull opening its mouth, breathing out some sort of fire, or like, like smoke, I mean, or mist or something, and you see these cops coming out as they represent danger for the Baron, like, I, I like the idea of what this is going for, but I don't know if the actual image that it's conveying, uh, and like you, I think the Baron's storyline has, has really, uh, well, we'll see, I think it, it kind of picks up in this issue and gets a little bit more interesting, but it, it has been secondary. I think... I do think it's cool in, in in sort of centering him and making it seem like he is in danger for once, which is cool. I don't have a problem with this. I just it doesn't wow me as much as I wish it would, because I think the idea for this cover is really cool and really striking. But I don't know. The green fumes coming out of the mouth make it look like it's got some real halitosis or something. <laughs> oh, that's awful. <laughs> Alright, let's move on to Night Force Part 6. The Summoning Part 6, The Devil Her Due. Written and edited by Marv Wolfman. Art by Colin and Smith. Letters by Todd Klein. Colors Michelle Wolfman. The two KGB guys throw Jack and Donovan into a holding cell somewhere in Science City 5. They won't let the Americans get anywhere near their friend Vanessa. Donovan says he doesn't care about the girl. He holds the spies responsible for the death of his wife, Marianne. One of the Soviets hits him in the face with the butt of his rifle. Donovan bitterly insists that he'll get revenge as the spies lock the cell door and leave. In the central pyramid, the sinister Professor Valdis has Vanessa attached to his psychotron machine. In case this is anyone's first issue, he explains once more how her powers tap into the energy force of evil. Although Vanessa cannot control this, Valdis doesn't need her to. The psychotron can amplify and control her power, and he, of course, controls the machine. This will give Valdis and his bosses at the Kremlin the ultimate weapon as well as the means to explore the deepest secrets of the universe. The KGB agents enter the pyramid and tell Valdis they've captured Vanessa's friends. At the mention of Jack's name, Vanessa regains hope for her freedom, but Valdis insists that Jack is not her friend, nor will he be able to help her. He summons the other psychics based in Science City 5, and they form a ring around the psychotron. The Russian psychics use their power to cut through Vanessa's mental defenses. She feels herself psychically violated, and at that precise moment, time catches up and Vanessa Van Helsing turns 21 years old. The evil energy inside her pools out of her mouth, eyes, ears, and nose, manifesting as ectoplasmic entrails. The energy begins to swirl around Vanessa. The wind picks up, blasting the psychics and Valdis, who hold fast, resisting the energy. Valdis smiles, so certain he stands on the edge of controlling the greatest force on Earth. It's the last mistake he'll ever make. The Psychotron has, indeed, awoken the power within Vanessa, a power greater and deadlier than anyone knew. Vanessa has spent her whole life being prodded, tested, victimized, and terrorized. And now, the power to lash out, to get revenge, is all hers. The swirling ectoplasmic energy takes on the demonic shape of a devil, telling her it's time to kill them all. Everyone who wanted to hurt her, who wanted to use her. They all have to pay, and she has the power to make that happen. The air around the psychotron turns to fire. Gigantic serpents crack through the floor of the pyramid. 
one of the snake's coils around Valdus. Its touch, like fire, incinerates him. The snakes destroy the Psychotron. It is no longer necessary to amplify her power, and it certainly cannot control it. The energy builds and builds, creating a whirlwind of fiery energy engulfing the scientists on the upper levels of the pyramid. The structure begins to crumble. Parts of the ceiling fall, crushing the Russian psychics in the circle around Vanessa. The power of hell, once trapped in a young woman's fractured mind, is unleashed, and all the power wants to do is kill everyone, and find Jack Gold. The KGB guys run toward the holding cell. In desperation, they hope Jack and Donovan can help contain Vanessa's fury, or at the very least distract her. The agents lead Jack and Donovan out of their cell, but Vanessa's energy followed them. The giant serpents burst through the floor. One of the KGB guys is wrapped up by the snake-like energy and burned alive. The other agent makes a run for it, leaving Jack and Donovan behind. From the mouth of one of the serpents, a dark specter of Vanessa's voice says she wants Jack for betraying her. Donovan, whose leg never really healed from the gunshot sustained in London, stumbles and falls to the floor. As the serpents converge on him, he calls out to Jack for help. But Jack Gold panics and runs away. On the other side of the world, in Georgetown, Detective Elliot Short leads two patrol cars to Wintersgate Manor to arrest Baron Winters on suspicion of possibly colluding with the people who kidnapped Vanessa. After his last trip to Wintersgate, the detective isn't excited to return. He knows there is something bad about Winters and his house, and he wonders if he might not survive to his next birthday. Inside the house, Baron Winters laments that his night force failed to rescue Vanessa. He cannot allow Detective Short to take him into custody, so Baron Winters and his pet Merlin hide deeper in the house. When the police knock on the door, it opens on its own, haunted house style. Short and the cops spread out and search the creepy place, startling themselves a couple of times. One of the cops hears a noise from behind a door in Winters' bedroom. When he opens it, the cheetah leaps out and knocks the cop over. Then Winters and Merlin depart through a doorway that seems to glow with unearthly light. Refusing to let the Baron escape, Detective Short and his men follow Winters through the glowing gate. And when the light fades, they find themselves, inexplicably, in 14th century France, surrounded by rotting corpses in the heart of the dreaded Black Plague. As the cops contend with that impossible reality, all life on Earth is threatened in 20th century Siberia, as Vanessa is joined completely with the evil force that once dwelled in her nightmares. Now the power is hers to command totally, and her enemies, all enemies, are about to die. To be continued in Night Force, Issue 7. Ange, what did you think about this chapter? I actually like this one quite a bit uh, because we finally sort of get to see Vanessa really uh, like unleash all of this energy um, uh, and kind of give in so that we truly get a sense of, you know, how monstrous and powerful this is. Um, I did find it interesting sort of early on, the doctor says evil energy is drawn to you and all of these silly satanic cult rituals are not needed to harness this. It's just that you Americans are into Hollywood style things. So it's not as if this is Satan, right? This is just psychic energy that she's manifesting that Kane was just doing this horror movie stuff as a way to, I guess, focus her thoughts around it. And then I also liked the way, uh, you know, she doesn't want to give into this, but they bring in all of these minor psychics to kind of induce this sleep state into her that then unleashes it. And then, of course, they're screwed. So, right. <laughs> so it's, it's always good when it's like, you know, hey, let's unleash an omnipotent evil source. Oh, why did we do that? Right <laughs> now we're dead. 
but you can see that she probably buys into all of this, you know, satanic stuff because she manifests all of this as giant purple snakes and this ghostly, horrible image that really screams kind of um, horror movie, um, you know, Rosemary's Baby sort of stuff more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you know, then the Baron goes into the past and there's the bubonic plague and I'm kind of <laughs> like, can I just get past those pages so that I can get back to what's happening in Siberia? <laughs> hey, man, the, the Baron's been hassled by the cops. It's pretty serious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I Actually, for the first time, I really liked the Baron segment of this. And maybe it's telling that it, it because it wasn't so much the Baron segment, it was really Detective Short's uh, part of the story. But for the last part, like the cops are basically storming Winter's Gate. The door opens on its own. You get like the kind of creepy thing. I felt like th- that scene had a very haunted house vibe. And I could see it playing out as a movie or a TV show, complete with jump scares. Like when the mo- like when the cop finds the Baron's office and he's just lighting, like he's looking at it by like the flickering light of his uh, his Zippo, his lighter or something. And Detective Short like pops up over his shoulder and he kind of like jumps, like he's like spooked by himself. I was like, okay, I can see that as a jump scare in a movie. Uh, when they open the door and Merlin leaps out, that's another one. Like, yeah, I mean, the Baron himself was a very minor part of this issue. But I did like that whole sequence with them in Winter's Gate looking around. It had a creepy vibe. And yeah, and then they show up in France centuries ago when they go through the portal. And they're in the midst of the Black Death. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the snakes in the early bit, they seem to be acid snakes. They seem to, uh, their touch burns and mm-hmm. horrible stuff like that. So we get a, a, a guard getting completely consumed by burning up or something. Yeah. And I like that effect. I like that these like these weren't literal manifestations like snakes. They were just sort of like this part of this psychic energy that just like just burns them and engulfs them in flame. And yeah, we see we see a couple. <laughs> you remind me like Ange when you said kind of like the their plan is always just unleash yeah unleash some omnipotent power that we really can't control. I always think there's a moment in this like when two signs kind of look at each other and they're like, should we have a backup or a contingency plan for this? And when like the ground the ground just collapses collapses underneath them and they're sucked into this like vortex of just fire and energy there, there must be some data about what's happened with uh, vanessa before i mean maybe someone go hey let's not stand in the same room as her when we unleash all this evil let's uh, you know let's go stand over here in this other room behind these walls or something. you know at least yeah. something there's no containment it's just like every time they get other people do the same thing and it's worse every time <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they they know what she's done because early on they're like, oh, remember when you did that and you killed Donovan's wife? That was you. You released all of this evil. And I guess they just think that this, you know, pile of pipes is like the perfect thing to contain all of this energy. But you're right. Um, you know, how about like having somebody with a tranquilizer gun next to her, right? You know, it's just um, – but no, they're pretty confident that they're going to be able to handle it, and they you were, pay for it. You were dangerous to everybody else, but we'll be fine because check out our giant pyramid. <laughs> yeah, right. We went mm-hmm. to Sanford and Son. We got a lot of junk. We put it together, and and here we are. Yeah. Oh, dear. So, I mean, I think the most useful thing about having a uh, trip to the bubonic plague in 14th century France would be you could take anti vaxxers there for a day trip. <laughs> You like this? This is what you like? (laughs) Yeah. Nice, nice. 
Um, page eleven, the big splash page. I do once again. I like the scale. I like. I like whenever we get a splash page in this series. I can't help it because I like just like seeing the scale of this pyramid on all these different levels as it's just being. We just get like this funnel, this tunnel of energy and psychic, and and the face kind of in the serpent looming as people are kind of realizing what has science done. <laughs> um, yeah, I'll um, I'll echo that, but I'll say um, the last splash page on page twenty three um, when you know this entity has finally manifested and says, "I will destroy our enemies, Vanessa, all our enemies." And uh-huh. I think the thing that works there is that. This demon is serpent and not drawn, so it gives it that sort of phantom, is it tangible, not tangible, is it real, not real, feel, um, that just works. Yeah. Is serpent really a word? Anyway. <laughs> Some people might call it color hold here instead, but, um, but either way. That, they, question, say... <laughs> that question has been debated on another podcast. We're not going to get into it. It's a bit flexographic, isn't it? Yeah. Um, The use of that technique throughout this comic, I think, has been really well done. Um, So I appreciated it. I think it improves as the series goes. I don't know if it's just technology or if they get a better handle on it. There were a few times in the early issues that when Paul and I were covering, like, issues one and two, when I just felt like, and maybe it was a printing issue, maybe it was just how old my copies of the comics are, but there were times when I looked at it and I was like, I have no idea what I'm looking at. Like, I didn't know what the the energy, like, the focus was supposed to be. Yeah, by the time we get to this issue, and I think certainly the next one, I think they have cracked the code of what the serpent and how to use that to effectively convey this energy. Earlier on, I think we we had some problems. At least I did. Am, am I right, Paul? Like I think we kind of complained. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we both did. So we bitched and moaned. <laughs> Uh, back to Detective Short when he's in the car when he's riding up on like on page fifteen and they're they're going to arrest uh, the, the Baron. I just like the fact that he he kind of just offhandedly mentions like, "Can you believe I'm going to be fifty three next month?" It's like, isn't that what they say right before they die in every movie? It's just like, <laughs> oh man, two days from retirement and I get stuck with this job. What do you think? Uh, I'm too old for this shit. Yeah, exactly. Like, oh, yeah, he's a uh, goner. <laughs> but I just, that is classic. Yeah, but once hell is unleashed, once Vanessa kind of goes goes crazy and the, the power is unleashed, we get the death of Dr. Valdis, who is just picked up pretty quickly and incinerated. And then one of our two KGB guys, it seems like he's trying to do a noble thing. Well, I mean, they, the two KGB guys who we never, never actually get their names. We only knew the American agents that they were impersonating. But they go to the cell to let Jack and Donovan out, not to free them for any altruistic purposes, but to, to leave them to, to hopefully distract Vanessa or to calm her down to placate them. And the, the snake tentacles burst through the floor. One of them basically like get get Jack out of there. I'll hold him off, and he's immediately killed. And the other guy just makes a break for it. I love that. I just got the impression that there's a page missing where we see you know the snake tentacles where their source is, and you know some sort of um, I guess monstrous conjoining of them all or something. Uh, you know, but we just get the swirling color mess with the snake sort of separate to it. Yeah, I think like yeah. page nine, I think, is the closest to that when we see kind of the face above her and in the second panel, the snakes sort of just coming out of the ground around her. I think they're just they're like just almost like wisps of her imagination, her energy that kind of take on this physical form. 
Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I like the fact that they're not truly like snakes. Like they don't have to bite or strangle anybody. They look like snakes because that's part of her her fear and part of what what how she conceptualizes this power and how she rationalizes like the just the terror. But they don't have to act like snakes. They just once they like wrap up, like you said, they they have this acid touch that basically just engulfs these guys in fire. Uh, oh, they probably man thing snakes. They, whatever <laughs> knows me, it burns at the touch. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, they destroy earlier uh, in the book. They destroy what looks like the base of the psychotron, so that that's uh, not around anymore. And uh, they can talk. We see on fourteen, one of them is actually yelling at Jack, saying, "You know, you betrayed me. I want to destroy you." And so you know that she really is going after everybody who has wronged her in any way, because she's kind of had this, "Oh, Jack is going to save me" thing. Um, and now she's realizes that he's deceived her. You know, one more thing I got to say is that page 10, when you read it, it's kind of softcore pornish as she's destroying everything, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, so good, so good. The feeling so strong, getting stronger, <laughs> warm and pleasing and moist. Can't stop now, don't stop now, don't. Uh, you know, uh, as I was reading it, I was like, oh, you know, you could say almost like her finally just, you know, letting it all out. I guess could be, you know, orgasmic in a way. Um, that totally went over my head when I was young. <laughs> well, I think I think there is something to that, and there is meant to be a, a sort of... Uh, this is in part her growing up, her becoming a woman, taking on a little bit of her own independence, her own identity, and I think her sexuality is part of that, as we will see in the next one, especially as it pertains to Jack. Um, but there is a fact, like, once the psychics kind of like put her to sleep and once they start channeling this energy there is a line that is kind of like mentioned casually that she just turned 21 and hmm. I, I i like that idea i was just kind of like oh yeah shit's about to get really really bad for these guys <laughs> like just something the fact that wolfman mentions that it's like oh yeah it's like some internal or external clock just signified that now she she will have full command of these abilities or or she won't but whatever whatever it is they don't realize the danger that they're they're unleashing yet they're not going to be able to control this um i mean moist is a very <laughs> loaded word right you don't just casually toss that in it's either brownies or something else so <laughs> that's why that's why, On, um, yeah my favorite line in the empire strikes back when they walk out into the cave and han says there's an awful lot of moisture in here i always go tee <laughs> If this were waiting for doom, we'd needle drop in. Um, let's get it on at this point. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, you could put sugar walls in here if you want. Oh. <laughs> again, you again with the sugar walls. Again with the sugar walls. <laughs> Such a pity, Frank's missing all this. <laughs> yeah. Yes, as we will, as we will come to in our uh, in our comment section, Frank is done with us. <laughs> All right, we're going to cut this episode here, but next week when the show returns, Dr. Ange will be back to help us cover issues 7 and 8. Until then... Midnight, the podcasting hour, is a proud member of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Midnight, the podcasting hour. You can find Ryan on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or send him an email at rdailypodcast at gmail.com.
Midnight, the podcasting hour, is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed belong solely to the speaker. Music for this podcast is produced by Neil Daly. Any additional music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, have a good midnight.